Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for you being the light, Lord, and letting us walk in you. Well, I'll invite you guys to take a seat where I'm going to let you know about a couple things going on in the life of the church. We are excited about this week. Jared and his team are leading worship for us. I love that we get to worship as we're walking in and finding our seat. It's not just a a specific set of minutes that we are to worship God. It's all the time. So I'm excited we got to do that this morning um, as a, pre, a pre-worship worship. For those that don't know me, my name is Lauren. I just want to welcome you to Faith Church. We are glad you're here to worship uh, with us this morning to discover God, to encounter him. Um, make yourself at home. Wanted to let you know a few things going on in the life of the church for you to plug in, uh, plug into and mark your calendars for. First, our third through fifth grade discipleship program, Faith Followers. Third through fifth graders, you have Faith Followers this Wednesday, every second and fourth Wednesday so of the month is Faith Followers. So we invite you um, to the kids' wing downstairs this Wednesday, third through fifth graders. We'd love to have you there at 630 also wanted to let you know, last week I had mentioned um, in more detail than I will today, um, the Pregnancy Resource Center and the way Faith Church is partnering with them this month is um, we celebrate the sanctity of, of life. And so the Pregnancy Resource Center here in Statesville does incredible work. Um, they uh, equip women with free ultrasounds. They equip women with unexpected pregnancies with um, all the things they need to have a baby in terms of uh, diapers and clothing, classes for equipping to understand what it's like to have a baby and how I parent. Um, And most importantly, they have spiritual conversations. They provide counseling. They provide emotional and physical support. Um, to men and women facing that, um, that challenge. And they also um, bless women uh, with support um, post-abortion. So um, they provide restoration services and um, counseling for that. All of that as well as um, prevention. So they're in middle schools and high schools um, working with young uh, girls and women uh, to understand their identity in Christ um, throughout adolescence. And so, like I said, um, Faith Church is passionate about partnering with the Pregnancy Resource Center. And one of the ways you can personally partner um, uh, with them is through their baby bottle campaign. Today is the first day. Oh, I left it at my seat. There are little um, baby bottles. Yeah, Roman, hold it up really high. There's little baby bottles just like that out in the lobby on the table. If you will um, snag one of those bottles and just keep it for the next month or so until the last Sunday of February and just toss your spare change in it if you happen to have some spare dollars, fantastic. Um, But fill that up with your spare change and then just bring it back to the same table here at church um, anytime uh, between next week and the last Sunday of February and all of that money will go to the Pregnancy Resource Center. We are only one of many churches in the area who is uh, participating in this campaign to bless um, the women and children of uh, Iredell County through the Pregnancy Resource Center. So we would love to have you partner with us on that. So make sure you grab one of those on your way out. Also, um, a members meeting is coming up for those of you that are uh, covenant members at Faith Church, Sunday the 28th, Sunday, January 28th, um, just a few minutes after we end our normal Sunday gathering. If you um, are a covenant member at uh, Faith Church, we would love to have you stay. Um, we're going to be discussing things as a church body, some church business, things like changes to our bylaws, um, updates to our church budget, as well as walking through some 
um, opportunities uh, for future partnerships with Faith Church and some other organizations. So we would love to have you there um, so we can all be on the same page about that. Also, if you are not currently a covenant member, maybe you're just visiting or maybe um, you have been coming for years and years, but you've decided you've not yet decided to be a covenant member. Don't worry about it. And we actually will have a connect class, which is what we call our um, our time where we equip people to understand what being a member looks like and if that, uh, present that opportunity to you if that's something you want to do. So that class will be coming in the spring, and you will, you will have all this information that's being presented even if you become a member at a later time. So um, all that to say we would love to have uh, those of you who are, are currently Covenant members the 28th and keep an eye out if you're not and want to be for an upcoming class in the spring. Lastly, I want to invite you to refresh. Refresh is a time that we are carving out for worship and ministry as a body of Christ. And we're opening it up um, to everybody. Um, this is a time to passionately pursue purity, um, like Pastor Charles talked about um, the last several weeks as our focus. But I want to read you um, a passage of scripture as we as we get ready to um, host this time of worship and ministry that we're calling Refresh. If, you'll, if you want to look, you can turn to Acts 3, starting in verse 17. This is what the word says. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Why? That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus times of refreshing is something that is available to us in the presence of the Lord. And so that's why we want to pursue him. So I encourage you to mark your calendars uh, for January 28th, 6 p.m. right here. We will be pursuing the gifts. We will be offering our praise and worship to the Lord. The water will be open for both baptisms and immersions. So we would love to have you there. And I would just encourage you to pray and ask the Lord if there's somebody in your life that he is inviting you to invite here, to encounter him, and to be refreshed in the presence of the Lord. Would you guys stand with me as we open in prayer for the, our, our worship time? God, I thank you for your presence. I thank you that that is a a gift to us, Lord, that that is a reality of those who follow you, that we can actually be in your presence. What a confounding reality, Father. Lord, let us stand firmly, though, on that reality. God, when our mind or the world around us wants to tell us that that's not true, that you can't be found that you can't be experienced, that, that, there, that there is no truth, that there is no light. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do exactly what your word says and lead us in all truth, including that one, Lord. That we can abide in your presence. Father, let us, 
Let us rejoice today in that truth, that because of Jesus Christ, because of his sacrifice, God, you have made a way for us to be back with you. Not someday in heaven, although that is true as well, God, but right here, right now. Lord, let times of refreshing come in your presence, Lord. I ask that you would let that soak us in your joy, but more than that, Lord, I pray that you would be glorified and exalted in that, God, as we encounter you in your presence, Father, as we encounter the goodness of your spirit and the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, Lord, I ask, God, that that would be the means by which you are exalted, that everyone on the face of the earth would come to know who you are because of how good you are, how good you are to your people, God, that we would reflect your glory back to you, Father. Lord, in this place right now this morning, I pray that you would fill it, fill it thick with your presence. Lord, I pray that you would meet each one, that you would, that you would undo whatever, whatever shell is around each of us, God. You know the, the varying thicknesses, Father, of, of where we're at with you. So, Lord, I ask that you would that you would make a crack in every shell. That you would find your way, God, into the spirit of every person in this place in such a unique and beautiful way, God, that they are changed for eternity and that you make them change makers. Father, help us exalt you and bring you the praise that you are worthy of this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. It's so funny how God aligns things. Um, every time I get the uncomfortable pleasure of getting to lead, I always ask God, what am I supposed to say? And I, he almost left me off, let me off the hook of not saying anything, but I just got a little thing this morning, and it's uh, the churchy lingo is usher in the presence of God. He's already here. He's in you. He's in me. He's here. So, uh, I'm not planning to do any more talking after this. We're just going to sing, and we're going to sing until Pastor Charles comes up. Um, and we're just going to honor and praise God. It is you.
lift up our hands. As we lift up our
so as we approach the holy God we do it only through Jesus I thank you that he has made the way thank you that he has given us the opportunity now as we open your word father I pray that we see your holiness Respond accordingly, Father, with reverence and awe and boldness. In Jesus' name. 
Amen. You may be seated. Tomorrow I'm going to send out uh, the first 50 weeks in the Word for the year. Uh, so if you're not on that list and you want to be on that list, just write it on your Connect card uh, from your bulletin. Put it in the box on your way out and we'll get you on that list. This morning, we are starting our series in Leviticus. It's called Purified for the Presence, a journey through Leviticus. Um, and so uh, one thing that I want to point out as we go in uh, is that this will be different. <laughs> we'll, be, uh, we'll be diving into some passages that you probably haven't dove into before. But when Paul writes, when Paul writes in 2 Timothy verse 3.16 that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be fully and complete, lacking in nothing. When Paul says that, he's talking mostly about the Old Testament. He might have some idea that his words are going to become scripture, but when he, when he writes that, he's writing about these books that we uh, tend to skip or don't tend to focus on quite as much, but we're going to be going through it. And this morning, um, this is one of those messages. Every now and then these messages come up where it's like 75% uh, of me says, you need to know this information Right, we're doing an intro, so you need to know this information so that it frames all of Leviticus for you. And then 25% of me is just a little bit of a nerd, and I'm like, this is so cool that I have to teach it. Right? It's like, it's like when you get a thread in your sweater and you just start pulling on it. And, and you're, I know you're not supposed to now. It took me like 30 years to learn that. But like you just pull on the thread. Like that's what happened as I started to, to read and learn about this. Um, what we're going to talk about this morning. I just kept pulling the thread and there was more and there was more. And then I'm seeing connections of it all over the Bible. So that's what we're going to be doing as we intro into Leviticus. And like any good introduction into Leviticus, we're going to start in 2 Kings chapter 5. So go ahead and turn there. That's where we'll be coming out of uh, for our scripture this morning. Before we jump into it, uh, I do this, I try to do this when we go through a book to give you what resources I'm using in case you want to read along. Uh, my first resource is a book called Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord by Michael Morales. And understand that uh, if you were to try to read this book, it's, it's what I call a headache book. You just read it and you're like, I got to read that again. And then you read it, like, I'm going to read it again. Um, but uh, his walk through Genesis and Exodus leading up into Leviticus is probably the best I've ever read. Um, on a side note, uh, if you find this book lying around the church, please let me know because I lost it and I don't know where it is. So I, I might have to fork out the 20 bucks for a new one or hopefully it'll turn up. It's either in my office or the bathroom if it's at the church. So just because uh, I might, you know. All right. Um, the second one is uh, Notes on Leviticus and the Naked Bible Podcast Leviticus series by Dr. Michael Heiser. And then the Bible Project also has a podcast series on Leviticus that Tim Mackey leads. So those are um, what I am uh, reading as we're teaching and going through this book. Um, 
But we're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 5. And here's what we have in 2 Kings chapter 5. There's a man named Naaman. And he is the, the head of the armies for the king of Syria. So he's a very powerful, well-known, wealthy man. But he has leprosy. And that's a problem. And so in one of his raids, he took a small Israelite girl as a, uh, a slave. And she tells Naaman's wife, she says, if he goes to go see the prophet in Samaria, which is in Israel, if he goes see and sees the prophet of Israel, he'll be healed of this. And so Naaman goes to this king and he says, king, can I go? And he says, yes. And uh, so the king sends a letter with silver and gold and clothes and he sends all of this to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel reads it, and he basically is like, if Naaman doesn't get healed, we're going to go to war, and people are going to die. And so it says that he starts tearing at his clothes. He, he's, his, uh, that's a sign of mourning and angst and fear. And Elisha hears that the king is tearing at his clothes, and he says, king, don't worry. Just send him to me. That's awesome, first of all. And then we're picking up in 2 Kings 5, 9 through 17. And here's where it says, so Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon of the name of the Lord, his God, and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? And so he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near to him and said, My father, it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And then he returned to the man of God. He and all his company, and he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but Israel. So now accept a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If, it ple if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of, of earth, for from now on, your servant will offer burnt offering and will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. And so what we want to do as we jump into Leviticus is I want you to start thinking a little bit differently. Because here's the reality that I know. I know that in here there's probably very few people who have studied Leviticus. Right? Leviticus is where, as I like to say, is where Bible plan, Bible reading plans go to die. Right? You've probably read the first few chapters of Leviticus and then been like, forget it. I'm done. And then you're in June, you're like, why didn't I stop? Why did I stop my Bible reading plan? Oh, Leviticus is why I stopped. That makes sense. But uh, so uh, any knowledge that you might have of Leviticus is probably very surface level. And you think, oh, or maybe even talk, oh, there's sacrifice in Leviticus, so all the sacrifices are about Jesus. And in a way they are, but in a way they're really all not. Look, Leviticus is full of sacrifices, especially the first few chapters. 
Like if you uh, start to read, if you want to read for next week, read Leviticus chapter 1. We're going to go through chapter 1 next week. But you're going to read it, and you're going to be like, okay, they cut out this and that, and then there's fat, and then there's fire, and there's blood thrown here, and stuff is burned up, and sometimes they eat it, and sometimes they don't, but sometimes they eat this kidney, but not that kidney, and sometimes there's birds involved. What's going on? So we'll look at all of this. But because we understand and know Jesus' sacrifice is we want to connect every sacrifice to the cross. And that's just really hard to do when a sacrifice you'll run across is you, you, get, some, you get some flour and you pour some oil in it. And then you cook part of it, you eat part of it. There's no bloodshed, there's no sins forgiven. And you're like, okay, how does this go with Jesus? Right? And so we, we don't want to do that. We, we have to read this in two different ways. We read it that, yes, we understand Jesus and his sacrifice and his death on the cross for us as that sacrifice. So we read it like that, but we also have to read it when it was written to a people. It was written to the Israelite people. They did not read Leviticus and think, oh, someday a Messiah is going to come and he's going to be the ultimate sacrifice for everyone. They, they, you cannot get that in Leviticus. Well, there's the Day of Atonement. We'll get there, but we, do, we don't, we can't always read the book with no, because we know the future. We'll look at specific sacrifices, but here's a reality. When we think about the sacrifice of Jesus, we apply the blood of Jesus to our lives, and the, that blood washes us clean of all of our sins, right? When the blood is applied to us. In Leviticus, we'll look at specific sacrifices, but there was never a sacrifice for sin, where blood is applied to a person. Every time the, the blood is applied to something, it's the, it's the holy of holies, it's the altar, it's, uh, it's this part, it's that part. There's never a part where they kill a dove and they're like, here, come here, right? There's some leprosy stuff, we'll get to that, but that's not a sacrifice for sin. And no sacrifice for sin is the blood applied to a person. I can't imagine wanting to repent a whole lot if that was the case. It's like it's time to repent. All right, get showered in blood. And, and what you have to, these sacrifices are not, for, are not about forgiving sins. It's not. Hebrews tells us they can't be about forgiving sins because it is impossible for the, bull, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So when you read as we're going along, don't read thinking, Oh, these, the, these, these sacrifices took away the Israelite sin. They didn't believe that. We shouldn't believe that. It's not about forgiving sins. And we'll talk about words like atonement. And we'll talk about words like holiness as we go. So it, it was never uh, intended to take away sins because if you read the New Testament, salvation was always by the same thing, by faith. By faith, it was accounted to Abraham as righteousness. Not because he did all the sacrifices, not because he uh, said all the right things, not because he followed all the laws. He was saved because he had faith. It's by grace, through faith, and it always has been. So what are the sacrifices about? The sacrificial system is a system that's intended to keep Israel separate or holy and distinct from all the nations around them. That's what it's meant to do. 
You see, when, when, here's, what, here's what you have to, to start to rearrange your thinking a little bit. We see the word holiness and we think the word perfection. Like, we're singing, we cry, holy, holy, holy. We are not crying, God is perfect, 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 right? That's not what's happening here. What holiness means is it literally means to be set apart, to be different and distinct. And so when we say that God is holy, we are acknowledging that there is a full spiritual realm full of good and bad, evil and and righteous, Right? And God is holy because he is not like any of them. He is so far set above them that there is no God beside him. It's this holiness. When we cry, holy, 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 we are saying you are so magnificent, so other, so other uh, worldly, and we can't even comprehend your depths. And so we worship you. And so when he says be holy, as I am holy in 1 Peter chapter 1 that I quoted last week, it's not about us being morally perfect, though God is morally perfect. It's about us being separate, distinct, and different than the people around us because we know and love Jesus, right? Leviticus is about maintaining a holy and sacred place to house the presence of God. That's what it's about. So when we, when, we, when we read through it and we go through it, we, we have to ask the question at every turn, how does this maintain holiness so that God could live with his people? That's how the Israelites would have looked at it. And now we also look at it and understand that they had to remain pure, holy, and set apart so that the Messiah could come to save the whole world. That was their whole mission. Though they didn't fully understand it and they didn't get it, their mission was to be the people that would bring about the Messiah, Jesus, to save the world from their sins. This is how we look at Leviticus. And so we're going to talk about this and we're going to go through a theology of land. And when I mean land, I mean like literal dirt. Trees, things you can put your hands on. There's a, there's a town in Guatemala. It's called Amalonga. Uh, if you know Stephanie and Lloyd Bell, they're actually on a, a, a mission trip in Guatemala right now. And I sent them this as I was prepping this week. And I was like, are you going to be close here? They're like, we're like four miles. So they're going to try to go to sea. But Amalonga in the 70s, it was a, a land of alcohol and poverty, and zero economy. There was nothing. A town of 20,000 people, approximately, had 36 bars in it. And this is all people did all day was get drunk. There was four jails that were usually full to where they would have to turn people away. There was public crime. It was rampant. And there was idol worship in the streets, like Legitimate idol worship. They're sacrificing to their native gods. They're worshiping their native gods. And in in the 70s, there was a pastor who decided that God wanted to change the fate of this town. And so he started praying. And he started with a small group of people praying. And this was a town where if you were a Christian, you could get beat up. And they started praying. And God started to move in signs and wonders. And people started to take notice. 
and people started giving their life to Christ. People started being baptized. People started, uh, there was healings, there was deliverances, there was all these things going through throughout this town. And it took 15 years, but in 1994, all the bars were closed. Nothing. They closed the last jail because the crime ceased to exist. And here's, here's a crazy thing. Their economy started booming through agriculture. They produce produce there that is three times as big as normal produce. Right? Some people, uh, they'll say, and they'll say, well, they're using a lot of fertilizer, and they're doing this, and this, and they're, they're trying to explain it, but other places that use a lot of fertilizer aren't doing it. You can look up pictures of the carrots that are that fat around, and they're holding them up. Uh, look, in, I don't know what happened, but something happened there to the land as it happened to the people. The physical earth, dirt, right? Dirt, trees, grass. I'm not talking about like the concept of earth. Yeah, the earth, the physical earth is tied to us and to the spiritual realms in ways that we don't know and understand, right? And so as I started to get this, that's when I kind of started to pull the thread. And I was like, okay, God, where is this in the Bible? And I started reading the Bible. I started reading books and I started, and it all starts with that the first command for man was to subdue the land and to have power over it. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish and the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the earth. So if we look at this, the mission of human beings is directly tied to the land. He doesn't say, be fruitful and multiply and go build me temples and churches and tabernacles, though that's part of what we do. But he says, no, the, the earth itself is yours. Have dominion over it. In fact, if we see that in uh, Genesis 1.28. We have to even look in the next chapter. But before this, we come from the land. And that ties us to the land in some spiritual way. And then God formed the man, uh, formed the man of dust. Uh, and then God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. He picked up dirt. Like, he, he, didn't, he didn't just say, okay, appear. He didn't, he didn't send a star to fall from the sky and a meteor hits and then uh, all of a sudden some sort of DNA finds itself there and then it evolves into what we are today. He grabs some dirt This is why I think stuff, uh, and this is a little bit of a tangent. Have you ever heard of grounding? Yes. Where you're supposed to walk barefoot on land and it like it resets some equilibrium in you? This is why it works. It's because we're tied spiritually to the earth. I'm not saying God's in the dirt and in the grass and in the trees. That's hippieism and pantheism, right? We're not about hippies or pantheists, Okay. So I'm not saying God's in the trees and that God's in the birds, but I'm saying that there is a spiritual connection between our physical bodies and the ground and the earth and the land, right? And at the fall, because of Adam's sin, the land is affected and it's cursed. 
I'm going to read you this passage in Genesis chapter 3, and here's what I want you to understand and look at. We know that because of Adam's sin that death entered the world. We know that because of Adam's sin, we, uh, we inherit his sin nature. We know and understand that, but you don't get that from the curse in the garden. In the curse in the garden, there is no mention of sin, depravity, or separation from God at all. Here's what it says. Adam, this is, this is your punishment from sin. He says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Men, this is the Bible teaching you not to listen to your wife. And have, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm not that Baptist, okay? Because, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. What's the repercussions? Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you'll eat of it all the days of your lives. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth from you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The ground's cursed. It changes everything now. And now we die and we return to dust until Jesus comes and we're resurrected and all that good stuff. But at the, at the garden, it's this place where, okay, now the earth itself is changed. There weren't any thorns there before. He could pick a rose and not have to finagle his fingers around. The curse for Adam is that while you live, while you're alive, your bond with the land is cursed, and now you're going to die. You're not going to be tied to, to creation the way that you once were. And then we go into the next chapter. Land can hold on to sin, and the effects of that sin lead to long-term effects on people. Cain and Abel, their brothers, and Abel brings a good sacrifice or a sacrifice that is, uh, uh, is revered and accepted by God. And, a and uh, Cain brings one that is not accepted by God. And Cain gets angry and he meets his brother out in the field and he commits the first murder that we uh, have record of in the Bible. And the Lord finds him. Uh, and, and he says, what, what, where's your brother, Cain? And Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? Why would you ask that? What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Like the land held on to it and it was crying out to God in some spiritual way. And now you are cursed from the ground. He's cursed again from the ground which has opened up its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Land can hold on to sin. That's such a strange co concept. But you, have you ever been someplace where you just kind of walk onto uh, somebody's property or, uh, somebody's, uh, or you're just walking uh, on a hike or something and you just go, oh, Something's wrong here. Right? There's, uh, you, uh, there was somebody who 
uh, they, they have uh, a bunch, some acreage here in, uh, in Statesville, and they were telling us about this place on their property that was, um, that just felt off. And, in the, and this was at the, like, the beginning of the journey, so I, I didn't always fully understand when it was God. Not that I fully understand now, but it was less understanding when it was God or something. And I think in that moment, God told me somebody was hanged on this land. And I was like, oh. But I can't really tell them that because I'm not. That's, that's before I was like embracing weird, right? And I was still kind of tiptoeing in weird. And I was like, ooh. It's like, ah, I don't know. Have you, this, is, this is the kind of stuff that, that alerts our spirits when we're in that play, those weird places, right? And because land can hold on to sin, land may need to be healed or purged, right? right? Well, there's the coffee cup, bumper sticker, wear a t-shirt verse in 2 Chronicles that says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray and turn from their wicked ways, and I will heal, I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. And that's a great verse. And, and, but the problem is, is that most evangelical Christians believe that healing our land is, uh, is putting Jesus back in schools, or putting the Ten Commandments up in the courthouses, and re- uh, electing the right official, and that will heal our land. But let's look at the context, right? Always look at the context. Here's what it says. The Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said, I've heard your prayer and chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. And here's where the land comes into play. When I shut up the heavens and there is no rain, when I command the locusts to devour the land, or I send pestilence, then if my people will humble themselves and pray, I'll I'll forgive them and then their land will be healed. What is he saying? I'll make it rain again. There will be no more pestilence, and the crops won't be devoured. He's not saying, well, we'll get everything right, and, and all, the, all, all the politics will be fine, and all the things that all the Christians want will happen in America. He's saying, no, the physical land will be healed. I have two examples of this. Uh, the first one is a, it's a very weird passage in 2 Samuel 21. And I'm going to tell you it, and you might say, well, and you might, uh, you're going to leave, like, thinking, what is going on here? And I'm just going to tell you, I don't know. I don't know exactly, but here's what I know. There's been a famine in Israel for three years. Three years. And David says, he goes to inquire of the Lord, why, is there, uh, why has there been no rain for three years? And the Lord tells him, there is blood guilt on the house of Israel because of Saul. What did Saul do? In Joshua chapter 9, the Israelites, they, they made a pact. They got tricked. And they made a pact with some people called the Amorites that they wouldn't kill them. This is when they're going through the land and they're taking cities and they're settling into the promised land. And these people come and trick them and they say, okay, we won't kill you. And then they say, because they tell them, we live far away, so don't kill us. And Israel says, says they do not inquire of the Lord. And they say, okay, you live far away, we won't kill you. And then, it, and then they're like, ha ha, uno reverse card, we live right over there, now you can't kill us. And so that's the oath. But Saul, it says in 2 Samuel 21, because of his zeal for the Lord and for the land of Israel, went and he killed some of them, the Amorites, who later become the Gibeonites. Kills them. And so God tells David this, 
And he says, go make, it, go make amends with the Gibeonites, and the famine will stop. And so he goes, and he goes to the Gibeonites. He says, oh, what can we do to, to make this right? And he says, and the Gibeonites say, well, we don't want to go to war with you, and we don't want any of your money. Because Saul did this, give us seven of Saul's descendants so we can hang them in public. And David says, okay. But he, he, the Bible says he's not going to give him Mephibosheth because he made a vow to Mephibosheth because he loved Jonathan, his father. And so what happens? These Gibeonites, they take seven of Saul's ancestors, probably uh, grandsons or great-grandsons, and they hang them out in the middle of public. And then it says, and God heard the plea for the land. Once the, the sin was atoned for in some way that I don't understand, Admittedly, the land was healed and the famine left. Land needs to be healed or purged. Here's one from ancient Greece. There's a man named Epimenides. And I practiced saying that name a whole lot this morning. <laughs> Epimenides. Now, uh, people will hear this and they'll think, oh, it's a tall tale, it's a fable. But I am so much more inclined to believe the, these tall tales and fables now because I think most of them are, have roots in truth. So there's a man named Epimenides, and he's a, he's a young guy, and uh, his father owns some land on Crete, on the island of Crete, which is just off of Greece. And what happens is, is that he's watching his father's flocks uh, of sheep, and it gets to be about noon, and he gets tired, so he goes into a cave to sleep. And he takes a nap, and he wakes up, and he can't find the flocks. The flocks are all gone. And he doesn't know where they are, and he looks all around, and he finally goes back to his father's house. But when he goes back to his father's house, his father's not there. His family's not there. It's another man that's there. And he says, no, I bought this land. This is my land. And so Epimenides gets freaked out. He's scared, doesn't know what to do. He goes into town, and he finds his brother. And his brother tells him, his brother's an old man. His brother tells him, it's been 57 years since we've seen you. We haven't seen you. This is where the story of Rip Van Winkle comes from. Right? But so Epimenides doesn't look any different. He still looks young. So I don't think he napped the whole time. It was probably in some time portal or something. I don't know. But he's there and it's 57 years later. And people start to hear about this. And so he becomes like this little freak of nature. But he becomes a writer, a poet, and they think he's prophetic. And so this is on the island of Crete. And on the mainland of Greece, as this is happening, there's a plague on the land. Right? And so they say, go get Epimenides. And so they send ships to Crete to get him and to bring him back to the city of Athens. And in Athens, they ask him, what, what should we do? What do we have to do so this plague stops? And he goes, he takes him to the Oropagus, which is this public square, uh, and it's land, and there's, there's markets, and there's all this stuff. And he says, let loose some sheep, only black sheep and only white sheep. And the first sheep that lays down, right there, build an altar and sacrifice the sheep. And so that happens. And they said, what God do we sacrifice it to? Because they had already tried. They tried Zeus, they tried Athena, they tried uh, Artemis, they tried all of their gods, and, and nothing had worked. And he said, make the sacrifice to the unknown god, and sacrifice the, uh, the sheep on that altar. 
How can you believe that's true? 300 years later, Paul comes into Athens, and he goes to the Oropagus, and he starts to talk to them. And he says, man, I see that you are religious in every way. In fact, when I was coming in here, I saw that you have an altar to the unknown God. I'm here to tell you that that unknown God is Yahweh, the God of Israel. It's the God, it's, it's the God of Jesus. And then he quotes Epimenides. He says, your poets say, in him we move and we live and we have our being. That's Epimenides. And he says, so I'm here to tell you that when you sacrificed and the plague went away, that was actually God on your behalf. You just didn't know it. So now let me tell you about this God and let me tell you about this Jesus. It's beautiful. The land needed to be purged by the sacrifice of that, that, that sheep and God moved on their behalf. This is what we're, we're looking at. When Yahweh separated the nations to be placed under the authority of lesser Elohims, he selected Israel as his own portion. Gone over this a lot. He gives Jacob as his allotted heritage. And from that point on, Yahweh is tied to both spiritual Israel and also the physical land of Israel, the earth of Israel. Here's what Frank Viola says in his book, Insurgents, Reclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom. He says, strikingly, throughout the Old Testament, whenever Israel is in the land of Canaan, God is called the Lord of heaven and earth. But when Israel is exiled from the land, he is just called the God of heaven. In 1 Samuel, David is, he is distraught because he's been, he's running from Saul and he's outside of the camp. And he says, they have driven me out of this on this day that I should no longer share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. Now, therefore, not, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. Being outside of Israel, for him was to be away from the presence of the Lord. Yahweh was tied to these, the, the land itself. Okay. Okay, beginning to understand. Now let's go all the way back to Naaman. Naaman is healed by Yahweh's river. He says... There's these other rivers, Abana and Farpar. They're in Damascus. Aren't they better and cleaner than this dirty old Jordan River? Could I not wash in them and be clean? And the answer is no, you can't because Yahweh's not in those rivers. He's only here. This is the river that he's chosen. And the same river is the river that Jesus is baptized in, that John the Baptist is doing his ministry. And this is the one that splits for them and is held up. This is the one that the floating axe head comes out of. This is God's river. And then Naaman goes there, he dips, and he's healed. He comes out. And then he goes to Elisha and he asks a strange thing. Can I take two, uh, two loadfuls of dirt back to Syria? It, Naaman believes that Yahweh is directly tied to the land in Syria. If there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. 
So what Naaman's going to do, he's going to take that dirt back and he's going to set it somewhere up, set it up somewhere. He's going to build an altar on it and he's going to sacrifice to Yahweh. He's going to sacrifice to God. But he thinks that he has to have the dirt to do it. Because why? God's in the dirt. Like God is tied, and he's not in the dirt, he's tied to that dirt. Right? He's there. And so he says, I want some of God, so I'm going to take some dirt from here. This is the way that ancient people thought about land. And it's so distanced from us. We just think, oh, we, we just walk on it and we might plant some stuff and man, maybe we'll pray and some we'll do some gardening and but they were they were intrinsically tied to their land. So now we're gonna talk about Leviticus. Levitical sacrifices and purity laws are about maintaining Israel as sacred space. For the presence of God. That, I'm going to use that term a lot. You're going to get so tired of it. But you're going to remember it. You're going to remember the term sacred space. Space that is holy and set apart. They have the presence of God in the tabernacle. We'll look at that next week. How the presence comes into the tabernacle. And now it's there with them. But man, God cannot live where there is not purity. And so to the people in the land that hosted the presence of God, they needed to be ritually pure. That's how come in Leviticus you'll see holy, unholy, clean, unclean, pure, impure. And so the, the blood of bulls and goats was to make things, uh, people, or God resides in this temple. I'll get to that. God resides in the tabernacle. And so he, there's people that need to be clean. Like in the holy of holies where God actually is, only one person can go. That's the most sacred space. Right? There's, then some people can come into the next level, and then some people can come into the next level. But if you break some laws, you have to be completely outside the camp because you're ritually impure. And to live with the presence of the holy God, they have to be pure. They were passionately pursuing purity. And so even while this was happening, there's restricted access. You can only go so far. You could only do so much. You could only, uh, only certain people can go certain places. And if you touched a dead body or if you did this, then you couldn't go anywhere. And you needed to go set yourself outside for a little while. Uh, here's what Heiser writes. He says, fundamentally, holiness in Leviticus and in the Old Testament system is not about morality, though morality is included in the idea. The concept has to do with something, a person, a place, or an object being set apart for sacred space in the divine presence. The parenthetical is mine. I put the parentheses there because you'll read, and you'll read, why are they taking blood and splashing it on an altar? Why, why can, they, why can not, certain people not touch this thing? Because it's a holy object, and only certain people can touch it. And, okay, well, how are people pure? They're pure by keeping the laws and and not, not doing the things that, uh, that God commands them not to do. And holiness is being set apart. It's living in an identity and action in ways that are different than those who do not belong to God. So this is where we start to draw it back to ourselves now. And when God says, you are holy, I am holy, so you be holy. When we say we're striving for holiness, when we're going after these things, 
being holy is living in your identity as sons and daughters of Jesus Christ and living in ways that are different than people who do not belong to God. That's what Israel is about. Their, their identity as God's chosen people and the law and the sacrificial system says we do it differently than everybody else. And so we look at that and we say, okay, God, I am yours and I want to know and live in my identity. And because of you, my identity and you, I don't want to live like everybody else. I don't want to live like culture. I don't want to live like the world. This is what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Now this is one of the biggest statements in all of scripture. For we are the temple of the living God. You are the temple of the living God. See, in Leviticus, God was behind the curtain in the Holy of Holies and only the high priest can come in and everybody else, if they wanted to have some time with God, they had to bring a sacrifice and things, blood had to be spilled and things had to be burned and some stuff was eaten and blood was thrown here and blood was thrown there. And, and now, wh wh so when we read that in Leviticus, the first thought you might have is, what? But then the second thought you should have is, thank you, Jesus. I don't have to do any of that anymore. That now, those who are with Christ, you house the presence of God. And then Paul quotes Leviticus. Part of Leviticus, he says, for we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and do not touch any unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Here's what you have to understand about sacred space. If you are united with Jesus, you are sacred space. If you know anything about the Old Testament, you are the holy of holies. Can you, if you went back 5,000 years and you found an Israelite and you said, oh, you know how God's in the temple right there? How he's in the holy of holies and only the high priest can go in there. You know that? Pretty soon, you're going to be the holies of holies. They would have stoned you for heresy and blasphemy. Like because the enormity of who God is and them being in his presence and him being there and things being different because he's there. For us to house that, they would have thought it was unfathomable because we are so dirty sometimes. But you are the holy of holies because of Jesus. Like we don't need a tabernacle or a temple because the very presence of God lives in you. And I don't know how many times I've heard that in church. I don't know how many times I've said that and just kind of glossed over it. Like, yeah, God's in me. No. God is in me. 
I can't understand the enormity of that. And when you hear it, something in your spirit might just think like, I can't fathom that. Does he know? Does he know I do this? Yeah. Does he know I, I've sinned this way? Yeah. Does he know how I doubt, how I fear, how, how, I, how I have all these struggles? Yes, he knows it all, and yet he chooses to stay there. Because the blood of Jesus made the way. And the enormity and the weight of that should then lead us to live lives of purity. Since we have these promises, this is the last verse in the passage. What promises that you are the temple of God and that God dwells in you and walks among you and you are a son or a daughter. Since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. We look at the enormity of God being in us and say, God, I don't want to defile it. What if every time you're tempted to go back to your addiction, you stopped and you thought, God's in me. I am a temple. What am I doing? Can't holiness have its completion in me? You are the holy of holies. And Jesus comes. And he's in Israel and he's making the way. And there's still the tie to, to the land. I mean, when he's going in on Palm Sunday and he's riding out on the donkeys and they're saying, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna in the highest. And they say, tell your people to stop saying that about you. You're not the Messiah. Tell them to stop. And he says, if they stopped what rocks, the physical earth would cry out. And because, look, Paul writes about sons and daughters, us being the holy of holies, the earth itself is waiting for us to carry out the mission of God. Romans 8, 19 through 21, for creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. When was it not willingly subjected to futility? When Adam bit that piece of fruit. It was cursed. It's futile. There's thorns. It's, it brings about pain. But because of him who subjected it, God subjected it in that way in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the glory of the children of God. Like, look, I, I'm, I'm not like, I'm not like, go get, go green. Go, everybody go get electric vehicles and do this to your house and, and put in uh, low flow shower heads and LED lights because it takes less power and drive your car, right? That's not me. But here's what I am. Let's do our mission so the earth is healed. Like, let's go on mission so that the earth that right now is waiting for us well, I don't know what it's going to look like when it, it is no longer. Look, it says the, that it is in bondage to corruption right now. But as the mission of God goes forward, it will obtain the same freedom in God that we have. I don't understand that. But this is new heaven, new earth stuff. 
that, that as we are revealed, it's set free. Because this is what it was supposed to be all the way in the beginning. Creation was designed to work properly when image-bearing humans worked in partnership with God to rule over the earth. That's Genesis chapter 1. And then Jesus comes and he says, look, the, 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 the directive, the command is the same. But now you don't need to do all the sacrifices. Now you don't need to do all of that. Just believe in me. Just believe in me and then go on mission with me. And as you do that, all the things that I've promised since the Garden of Eden, all of them will happen. All of them will take place. The gates of hell will not stand up against you. And everything's going to be restored and renewed. And you're going to be a part of it. And you get to see it and know it. Like I do say I don't know what it's going to be like when, when creation is freed from its bondage of corruption. I don't know what that's going to look like, but I'm going to be there. I'm going to be able to watch it happen. I don't, know if, I don't know if we're going to look over deserts and all of a sudden rivers start flowing through deserts and trees start popping up. Or places where the sea is chaotic and man can't go there, that it becomes calm and a place for us as well. I don't know what it looks like, but we get to be there. You are sacred space. And you have mission now. And as we have mission, it unlocks things that we can't even fathom. This is what Leviticus is ultimately about. I've read it though, Charles. It doesn't seem like it's about that. It's about that. Just trust me and stay with me the next few weeks. <laughs> we'll get there, I promise you. First question, are you united with Jesus? Like that's, that, that's the question. Have you believed in him for the forgiveness of your sins by his death on the cross? Are you willing to say he is Lord over everything, including my life, and I will trust and obey him? That unites us with him. It says then that we receive the Holy Spirit as a down payment. Are you united with Jesus? Because if, if we look around, like, there's a lot of people who unite themselves with the earth, right, in, in pagan ways and new age ways and these ways that God does not intend for us to be united. But he unites us, they, they unite themselves with the earth, but it's futile because they can never bring about the redemption of the earth the way that Christians can. And at the same time, there are people who try to unite themselves to the spiritual realms through new age, other religions, false beliefs, false teachings, false religions, all these things. But the way to be united with God is to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ so that the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in you and you become the holy of holies. That's good news. That's good news. Going on with that, do you know that God lives in you? Like, I know that, that's, that we would all, if you've been in church for any length of time, we'll be like, yeah, I know that God lives in me. Like, yeah, it says it right here, here, and here. But sometimes we just have to feel the weight of that. It can't become something flippant. It can't be, it can't be uh, 
we can't think about it the way that we think about what we're going to have for dinner tonight. There's a weightiness to the fact that the God of the universe through his Holy Spirit is in you right now. And as you learn to believe this more and more, where does your life need to reflect it? Stand with me. Paul says, because we have these great promises of God, let's cleanse ourselves from the defilement of our body. So there's a sense in which Paul is saying that we can cleanse ourselves, right? We can't do the ultimate cleansing. We can't do the taking away of sins, but we can cleanse ourselves by, by obeying Jesus and loving him more. So when I say, where does your life need to reflect it? How do you need to change? It's not like, oh, I need to change, and so I'll I'll do my best to change. The change comes from when you acknowledge the promises of God. When you acknowledge that God dwells in you, that he walks among you, he is your God. He calls you the daughters and sons of the Most High. Once you begin to do that, then the Spirit just begins to work in you and He brings to completion the holiness that God has started. And what God has started, He will finish the good work in you. Look, you. And so, okay. So you are not worthless. There's people in here this morning who, who hear me say things like, you are the holy of holies, you are sacred space, and you think there's no way, there's no possibility, I'm worthless because I have this addiction, because this happened to me, because I've been hurt in these ways. And, and you've been buying the lie from the enemy that you are worthless, and yet Jesus has come and he's died for you to give you infinite worth and value. Bow your heads with me for a second. I feel like like maybe there's somewhere someone in here this this morning that even even during this week thoughts of suicide have creeped up a little bit too strong. That, that, that maybe you've had them just a little bit before but that this week they got to the point where it actually scared you a little bit. And you might have said a phrase, something like, there's just no hope for me. Hope is in Jesus, and his hope does not put us to shame because he pours his love out on you.
So, Lord, if there is someone like that this morning, right now, I pray that your love would be poured into them in such a powerful way that right now it would overflow them like the waves overtake the shore. thank you that you live in us. I thank you that, that everything we're searching for is found in you, God. And I thank you, Jesus, that I don't have to bring bulls and goats when I come to you, that I don't have to worry about what I'm wearing, but I can come to you, Lord, and I can walk in boldly through the, through the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, and I walk into this place where you are that you have created me to be sacred space, that you have created those united with you to be the holy of holies. Lord, let it be so for us. And as we go, Lord, heal the land where we walk. Free it from its corruption and its bondage as we go. In Jesus' name, amen. No longer I who live, but Christ in me, for I've been born again. My heart is free, the hope of heaven before me, the grave behind, hallelujah, you brought me back to life. I won't forget the moment I heard you call my name out of the grip of darkness into the light of grace just like lazarus oh you brought me back to life where there was dead religion now there is living faith all of my hope and freedom are found in Jesus name just like Lazarus oh you brought me back to life no longer I who Oh 
Something says I am guilty. I'll point to the price you paid. When something says I'm not worthy, I'll point to that empty grave. Just like Lazarus, oh, you brought me back to life. No longer I. you've done for me Jesus to fully praise you it'll take all eternity just like Lazarus oh you brought me back to life you brought me
but Christ in me, for I've been born again. My heart is free, the hope of heaven before me, the grave behind. Hallelujah, you brought me back to life. Thank you for that life. Thank you for that life that Jesus brings. Because the power that rose him from the grave now dwells in us and will give life to our mortal bodies. So, Lord, let us live in that truth. Let us live in your presence. God, let us live with the knowledge that we are the holy holies. We are sacred space because you live in us. And, God, let us feel your holy weight. I thank you for for the ways that you, you speak and that you move. And I pray that you would just continue to do so, Father, as we, as we leave from here. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless.